You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Well, welcome to the Halloween edition of the Talk of Fame Network, where we're supposed to be spooked. Last week, by the ghost of Super Bowl's past, and that would be Super Bowl 51 between Atlanta and New England. But instead, yeah, instead we saw the skeleton of Falcons pass. Ron, uh, I know you were at that game. Pure and simple, the channel, the late Denny Green. Atlanta isn't who we thought they were. So uh, what, or maybe who, should the Falcons dress up as for Halloween? As you dressed up, I would say Clark is the ghost of Christmas past. <laughs> Last season, they were a gift to their fans uh, and everybody else. This season, it's a nightmare for them, for their coaches, for their players. Uh, their, their defense is just not flying around like they were last year. I was so impressed by them uh, through most of the Super Bowl because they had so much speed. Uh, and their offense under Steve Sarkation just looks like, frankly, like they got no clue. And what's the evidence of that, guys? You open the game running against a defense that allowed Josh McCown 354 <laughs> passing yards one week earlier. Not a year earlier, a week. You know, my, my, my daughter's going to a movie this weekend called Nightmare Before Halloween. Uh, maybe the Falcons should be starring in that. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Goose Man. Goose, you're, you're an NFC guy. Um, the Falcons are the defending NFC champions. We know Matt Ryan is the defending NFL MVP. Yet uh, they're both in the same place today, and that's uh, Nowheresville. Um, Falcons were 3-3, three and three, and Ryan, who last year threw for 38 touchdowns and just seven picks, has uh, seven touchdowns and now six interceptions. Perception here is that uh, it all starts with a change at offense coordinator with Steve Sarkeesian replaced Kyle Shannon. <laughs> Giving us more Dr. Well, more Mr. I than Dr. Jekyll, but is it deeper than that? Yeah, despite the telling us all offseason, I do think they're suffering from that dreaded Super Bowl slumber. I think the swagger that the Falcons took into the fourth quarter of that Super Bowl is gone. They're no longer forcing their will on defenses like they did last year. And I think there is some doubt now, and I think it's also clear that Steve Starkeesian is not Kyle Shanahan. And right now, the hiring of Shanahan by the still winless 49ers was a move that has hurt two franchises. Well, fortunately for us, Goose Man, we're not in Nowheresville today. We have a Hitsville lineup of guests. I know you know that from Detroit. Hitsville beginning with Hall of Fame candidate Albert Lewis, followed by Hall of Famer Andre Tippett, and a teammate of someone I know the Goose Man believes should be in the hall, and that's Cookie Gilchrist. We'll talk to Booker Edgerson, who played with Cookie in Buffalo and was his roommate to get insight into one of the most complicated and talented football players anywhere. But first, yeah, first, we're going to go to commercial. And then we're going to hear from Albert Lewis and Andre Tippett. You're listening to Talk Fame Network. Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Ah, yes. The Halloween edition of the Talk of Fame Network. And, Ronnie, what are the chances your son Jack is going as your favorite chef and my favorite QB on Halloween? And that would be Tom Brady. That would be zero. He's going as a real man. <laughs> Spider Man. <laughs> Not going as number 12. Where's that jersey? Where's that jersey, Ron? We burned that about halftime of the Super Bowl. <laughs> Bring it down here. I'll take it in Connecticut. Hey, Goose Man, you got kids at your door? Yes, sir. What do you give them? I'm handing out advice. I tell <laughs> each one of those little goblins to take the Eagles and give the points this weekend against the 49ers. <laughs> Good advice. Hey, you got any advice for Steve Sarkeesian and the Atlanta Falcons? <laughs> He's on his own. Yeah, he's on his own. Well, because it's the season of the witch, um, I have a lightning round of Halloween Jeopardy to play with you guys. And um, we've never done this before, but it's easy. You've seen the show, and you know how it's played. Heck, everyone knows how it's played. It won't take long, so uh, let's get started. First category. Baseball in November. And the answer is... World Series winner. Goose. Trumpets, please. Who are the Astros? Ron? <laughs> Ron? Well, I thought he was going to elaborate. Uh, uh, look, these are the two best teams in baseball, so it should be great. Uh, it's a question, Ron. It's Jeopardy. Let's Jeopardy. make it a question. Oh, we got to go really fast. The Dodgers, they got too much bullpen. You don't elaborate on Jeopardy. Be a Jeopardy. I don't watch Jeopardy. I live my life in Jeopardy. <laughs> he, he didn't say, who are the Dodgers? I'm sorry, you disqualified. You know what? The correct answer is... New York Yankees, 2018. Okay, next category. Scary Monsters of the Midway. And the answer is... Most Frightening Football Player Ever. Who is Dick Butkus? Ron? 
that name plus that game, Butkus. It's got to be a question. He's disqualified again. Oh my I gotta God. ask a question to make an answer. It's Jeopardy. It's Jeopardy. It's Jeopardy. It's Jeopardy. It's Jeopardy. It's It's calling the plays on our show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's see. The answer is who is Hall of Fame candidate Jim Marshall? Oh, God. Only guy who could win a game for both teams. Okay, let's move on to defense in the NFL. The answer is, well, I remember a question. Goose Man, you start first. Worst defense ever. Who was Tom Brady's cell phone supplier? Ooh, Ron. Who are the 1952 Dallas Texans? <laughs> Good one. I like it. But it's, I'm sorry, guys. The correct answer is, what was Irving Farr's explanation for missing the 1986 conference championship game? That was a terrible de- defense, Ron. You remember that? He says because he cut himself. He's in the kitchen with a knife. Jim said he cut himself when his pregnant wife went after him in a violent confrontation. Okay, then. It's a question. Okay, then. I'm not playing it. I'm just hosting it. We will stay in that category for our last answer, which is best defense ever. Gooseman? Who are the 1969 Kansas City Chicago Bears. Ah, good ones. Put you both wrong. The correct correct answer is, who's Tom Brady? Because he can outscore the Patriots' defense. Hey, thanks for playing, guys. Uh, Sorry, but there are no take-home prizes today. But we do. Yeah, we do have more for you. And it's questions. We got more questions on defense in the NFL, namely today's defense. And I mean today. Now, as Gooseman reminded me, there were three shutouts last week and four other teams that didn't score a touchdown. It's the first time since week 15 of 2012 that we've had three shutouts in one weekend. Now, you guys have been bemoaning the lack of defense all year in here, and um, uh, I just would like to ask you right now, I'll start with you, Goose. I'd explain what's going on here. Well, start with free agency. Remember when the NFL would rush out each offseason and sign the top wide receivers and blockers of free agency? Now that money's being spent on defense, the top three contracts in each of the last three offseasons have gone to defensive players. Adamakon Sue, Malik Jackson, Calais Campbell, Josh Norman. These are $190 million contracts. Teams seem to have come to the realization of late that you need more than offense to win a championship. And I think that's been the influence of the Seahawks and Broncos who have excess in that side of the ball. Now, so unless you have Tom Brady at your quarterback, you better have some guys who can cover and tackle. Well, Ron, you've got Tom Brady at quarterback. How to explain what's going on. Now, do I answer this with an answer or a <laughs> With an answer. We're finished with a lightning round. No more questions. That was too difficult. A lousy quarterbacks abound. I mean, look who got shot out. Jacoby Brissett, Drew Stanton, and Trevor Simeon. I thought Drew Stanton was in one of those one of those TV shows about Congress. You know? I mean, look, you know, bad quarterbacks. You turn them upside down, they look like good quarterbacks. You know, I mean, that's the problem, really. The, the, the rules still screw the defense. Every think, way possible. Yeah. But these yeah. guys are no good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're confusing Stan with the host of that game show, Win, Lose, or Drew. I think that's yeah, okay. <laughs> Do they ask questions on that? <laughs> hey, listen, um, Goose, as you know, coming into the season, we all knew that Seattle and Denver could play defense. But what's going on in Pittsburgh and Chicago? I mean, they both got top ten defenses. The Bears, Mitch Trubisky, he's got 12 completions the past two weeks. Yet the Bears won both those games. So – can a defense this season do what the Ravens, the Baltimore Ravens, did in 2000 and actually carry its team to the Super Bowl? Yeah, I think the Steelers are a legit Super Bowl contender for the first time in a long time because they're playing defense again in the image of that old steel curtain. You know, they've always had elite offensive playmakers, Roethlisberger, Bell, and Brown, but the pressure is no longer on that team to score 30 or 40 points every week to succeed. You know, this team is now capable of winning a 17-14 game. Right. You know, Seattle, Minnesota, even Jacksonville are in the same boat. I also think defense is the reason the Rams have resurrected. Chicago's, need, Chicago's going to need more quarterback, though, I think. No, I, I, uh, you certainly agree with uh, Goose about Chicago, and I would doubt that any team in the end is going to be able to you know, do it uh, in, in the way the Bears did in 85, or, the, or, or certainly the, the Ravens, even a better example. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, uh, again, you know, the rules are suffocating defenses. And as we get closer to uh, playoff time and even the crunch time, uh, those officials will start putting into the defense every way possible. Uh, and this, and that'll be especially true if the league office gets a phone call from some fantasy player who's upset they only got 12 and a half points. You know, and I'm going to cancel my red zone. You know, I mean, that's what it's all about. 
Hey, Ronnie, speaking of those uh, 2000 Baltimore Ravens, we know that Trent Dilfer was the quarterback in the Super Bowl. Do you remember who preceded Trent Dilfer as quarterback on that 2000 team? Ooh, that uh, would be Michigan State's Tony Banks. Tony wow. Banks, wow. True Stanton and Tony Banks, two Spartan quarterbacks in one discussion. <laughs> oh, can't get enough wow. of it, guys. Can't get enough of it. Okay, Goose, I'm not going to ask you about uh, Tony Banks or Michigan State. I'm going to ask you about the Minnesota Vikings. Um, they're on top of the NFC North, and they're on top for one reason defense. Goose, you're a historian. You're Dr. Datter. Uh, these Vikings sort of seem reminiscent of the teams that won in Minnesota with defenses in the 1970s, and yes, were carried to Super Bowls, and they're carried to Super Bowls by the Purple People leaders. Is this similar? similar? Yeah, yeah. You know, they get after the quarterbacks. They rank six in the NFL in sacks at 21. You know, quarterbacks under pressure make mistakes. Vikings have converted a few of those mistakes into seven interceptions. They rank in the top three in run defense. You know, defense is the reason they now sit on top of the NFC North at five and two, despite the fact they're playing with their second option at quarterback and their section option at second option at running back. It's all about defense. Okay, Ron, speaking of defense, it's during the AFC. Never thought I'd say this. How about those Jags? <laughs> they they have two two ten sack games this season. And they're on top of the AFC South. Of course they're tied with Tennessee, but Leonard Fournette, you know, and he's getting a lot of attention there and I understand that. But Jacksonville just won without him. And, and with 10 more sacks, uh, Ron, I know you saw this coming. Uh, tell me why. Actually, I did see it coming a little bit uh, uh, because, you know, look, Gus Bradley and, and the personnel department, they've been building a defense for a couple of years now. They invested six of their seven uh, picks in 2016 uh, on defense, including the first five. Uh, and they invested nine of 15 picks. Uh, between 2015 and 2016. Then they went out this year and signed th- basically three defensive starters in free agency, uh, uh, Calais Campbell and A.J. Boyer, who I always pronounce his name wrong, and uh, Barry Church. Uh, and they drafted a ball control runner, again, to help their defense. So I, I think they were really building for this, and this has now become uh, a big train coming, especially when it's coming at Jacoby Brissett, who's uh, utterly deflated by last week's <laughs> Hey, game. Goose, make a quick one for you here. Uh, I want to ask you about preseason playoff favorites. We had New England, Kansas City, Oakland, Tampa Bay. They all rank in the bottom five in team defense. Raiders the only team without interception. Bucks are dead last with seven sacks. Patriots, of course, allow 300 yards to every passer. Not named Matt Ryan. What's their future? Well, I think the Patriots and Chiefs have a chance to play great defense because they played some really good defense a year ago. Not so high on the Raiders and Bucks, though. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Hey, enough of defense, guys. Uh, we've got to go to the other side of the ball and run to commercial. When we return, it's the Hall of Fame case for, yep, Dartmouth grad Nick Lowry. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, uh, before we get started, I- I'd like to mention the passing of someone who is near and dear to all of us and who was in the Hall of Fame of PR directors, and that's former Chiefs PR director, Bob Springer, who died Sunday. Um, He was one of the nicest, funniest, and I think really most effective and efficient PR guys anywhere, and who, along with guys like, um, you'd remember him, Goose, and and Ron, Denver's Jim Sacamano, Seattle's Gary Wright, uh, Giants' Pat Hanlon, who's still with him. Uh, He knew how to advance a game, and now, of course, uh, nobody advances Unless, of course, we're talking about the Browns and 49ers football teams. But uh, those are the good old days, Goose. Yeah, Bob was a really good friend. When I got to Kansas City back in 1977, he was the PR director of the Chiefs, and he showed me the NFL way. He was one of the league's best back when the NFL actually cared about public relations. Yeah, yep. yeah you know, as you mentioned, you know, the Chiefs and the Raiders, uh, bitter rivals for years, you know, and it, it sort of went through every level of those organizations. But Bob... Uh, you know, Bob was like Switzerland, though. You know, he, he wanted the Chiefs to win and everything, but he treated the visiting writers from Oakland as well as as he did his own. Yeah. And and, and frankly, I can't say that uh, the guy you left out when you were listening to those PRs, the great Al Locasal, uh, did the same thing for the uh, uh, visiting press from various places when they came to Oakland. Didn't do it for me. He shut me out of the press box. Wow. He said, we're full. I'm sorry. We have no room. I called Bruce Allen. He goes, we got room. Loki told you that. I said, yeah, yeah. Thank he would. He once put a guy's chair on top of the press, literally on top <laughs> of the press box because Al was mad at him or something. <laughs> Oh, my God. That might have been Mark Heisler. <laughs> that's something Bob would never do, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's something Bob would never do. Well, since we're paying tribute to the, the greats of the NFL and the greats of their professions, uh, how about, guys, a shout-out to tackle Joe Thomas? Um, 
who after 10,363 consecutive snaps, who after 10 seasons and 10 Pro Bowls, who after seven All-Pro selections, finally sits down. And, and not because he was benched, because he quit, but because of a torn triceps that uh, ends the season. Yeah, you know, forget the 10 Pro Bowls. He deserves to be a Hall of Famer just for playing every snap for an entire decade. And he did it in a position where there was physical contact in every play and at a position where he faced the highest level of one-on-one competition, left offensive tackle. He was tasked with stopping the best pass rushers of his era, and none did it better. He was the third overall pick of his draft, and he was worthy of both the hype and the investment by the Browns. Wait a minute, Goose. You, you said he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Are you saying, in other words, future Hall of Famer? <laughs> I can't no. believe he said that. I that's, can't that's believe he said that. Future Hall of Famer is a term that you use, <laughs> never one that comes to mind. I can't believe mind. he said that. Hey, uh, Ronnie, you know what makes Joe Thomas's achievement so notable? Exactly. is how they were achieved, to be honest with you, uh, on one of the worst football teams anywhere. Um, he was a star of really a bottom feeder where he won only 53 of the 157 games he played in, or, or roughly 33%. And then that gets you nowhere but last in division, which is where the Browns are, and that's where they're going to be headed for the seventh time in the last nine years. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I think it says a lot about the kind of guy uh, Joe Thomas is. You know, he, ne- he never looked to cash out, get out, or opt out, even though it had to be uh, tempting at, at times. But he kept coming to work, uh, and, you know, when when it had to be, not only is it, is it a difficult job because you're in 50 car crashes every weekend yeah. uh, for 10 years, uh, but you have to come coming into a mess to, where you had to have a ton of games where you knew you had no chance uh, of winning. And I think it's also really a lesson, Clark, for uh, for everybody uh, who works anywhere about how to comport yourself when when things get yeah, tough. Right, you know, right. you keep showing up, you keep doing your best, and and I think he's a guy. I would say to my son, that's a role model. Not some running back who's you know a fool ninety percent of the time and looks good on Sunday. No, that's Joe a Thomas. Good, real that's world. a guy you would say to your son, future Hall of Famer. <laughs> and that's what Goose would say. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe you said that's that. That's a record. I'm glad you called him on that because that Jack, is... Jack would say, Dad, don't use that term. <laughs> he would. That's right. <laughs> would say, Uncle Goose know. says, don't say that. And Goose would say, you don't know Jack. <laughs> hey, uh, unlike Joe Thomas, of course, as everyone knows, uh, the Browns. I don't know how to put this any other way. Uh, they stink. Um, so, guys, let me throw this at you. I've um, been thinking about this for a while. They, they changed GMs and, and, and quarterbacks, Ron, like you change your leads. I mean, they have 27, I think, different starting quarterbacks since they rejoined the NFL in 1998. Um, the new regime here passed on Jared Goff, passed on Carson Wentz, passed on Deshaun Watson. So, clearly, nobody there knows what a quarterback looks like. But I know someone who does. And that's nationwide soundcheck guy, Peyton Manning. I mean, Goose, he fixed the Colts and the Broncos on the field. So why not try for a John Elway, Hail Mary here, and, and hire him to fix his mess? He'd been my first call, and it probably shouldn't have made, been made about a month ago. You know, I think there's a reason Manning has not turned up in any TV studio. I think like John Elway, I think he has a higher calling. You know, this is a player who rose to challenges week after week on the field, and building a competitive football team would be an even greater challenge off the field. And I know one thing. There hasn't been a better student of the game. He knows how to win and what it takes to win. And more importantly, he knows what a quarterback looks like. You find a quarterback, you find success. I trust Manning more than any of the GMs the Browns have trooped through Berea since 1999. Plus, Goose, man, you, you get all the Papa John's pizza free that you can you can handle, right? <laughs> There you go. Yes, sir. <laughs> this all, leave it to you to go right to the refrigerator. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. The problem with Hail Mary passes in Cleveland is they're throwing them on first down. So they, you know, mm-hmm. so if we're looking at a Hail Mary in the front office, I don't know. My only concern with Manning, and I agree with you know the, the points that, that you guys have made about him, but look, we don't really know uh, if he is a front office kind of guy, if right. he would be able right. to bring the same kind of enthusiasm over the long term? Does he know how to build an, a, right. a scouting system and an effective front office and all that? Which clearly they don't have, because if they did, they'd have Carson Wentz or or, or somebody like that, Dak Prescott or, or Watson playing quarterback for him. So you know, he, he would have all those, all those problems. It would be an interesting move, but to me it would be a dangerous gamble for a team that seems to lose every gamble it takes. 
Well, it's a dangerous move for Manning too, don't you think? I mean, listen, I, I, yes. I think it's I agree with I agree with Goose because I, I think that it, it might be worth a shot just to call him and see what's going on. But it doesn't necessarily translate that he's because he's successful on the field that he'd be successful in the front office. And to me, I, I know we've got a very short window here. We're looking at a very small window, but. John Lynch, for the time being at least, is an indication of that. I mean, listen, we all love John Lynch. John Lynch was a great field general for Tampa and Denver, but so far not so good in San Francisco. Now, maybe it works out, but he's not the second coming of of Ozzie Newsom, and and honestly looks almost like the the second coming of Ozzie Nelson right now. So, Goose, um, I I mean, it's it's a dangerous it's a dangerous step for Manny. I, mean, I understand why Cleveland would do it, and I think I would do it. I'd make the phone call in a minute, like you said. But I'm not sure that Manning would want to take that step because it seems to me, like you said, he's pretty good right now at sort of staying out of a lot of things and doing everything sort of behind the scenes, doing that nationwide commercial. He's doing uh, Papa John's commercials. He's doing direct TV commercials. That's all pretty safe stuff, and it's getting him a lot of money. What if he steps in there, finds a quarterback, yeah. and turns it around? Yeah, he could. Yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I done it. Elway's done it, and I, I do think Lynch has got a chance to do it. I, I think this is a trend you're going to see. But if, Goose, if he were going to do it, why wouldn't you have done it at Indianapolis? They needed a GM in the last in the last off season. Why not go to Peyton Manning, the perfect guy? They got a statue of him outside the stadium. Good question. Let's get Jim Ursa on the phone. <laughs> no, no, we only have we only have twelve minutes in this segment. That would be one question. But um, Ron, wouldn't you agree to me in Indianapolis? Wouldn't that be a no brainer if you were Jim Ursa? They say, hey, put a call to Peyton, and maybe he did. I don't know. Maybe he did. Right. But yeah, no, I, you're right. That's far more logical than, than than Cleveland. I would argue, although I guess he's friends with Haslam, the owner. But uh, you know, here, here's the thing. And Goose, you're right. You know the guys you mentioned. But let's not forget. The legendary GMs like Matt Millen. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, it's yeah, not like right, every, right, you put a player right, in there; it's right. automatically it's going to work. You know, I, I bet if we thought about it for a few minutes, we could find a lot of guys for whom it didn't work. You know, so I just stay away from the Raiders. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Wow. Uh, um, but you're right about that, I mean, and and I and I think that's it's it's tough to make that decision based on you know guys. Um, work on the field. To me, it's very different than, than baseball with a manager. You get catchers and they know what's going on. But with quarterbacks, I, I'm not so certain here. Um, John Elway certainly has done a good job in Denver. Um, but I think if you're Peyton Manning, unless you're really, really sure what's going on, um, maybe don't make that move. But I don't know. I, as I said, if I were Jim Irsay or if I were Jimmy Haslam, I would have made that call. All rise. Here comes the judge. That's my cue. And I'm not talking about quarterbacks or defenses for this week's State Your Case. I'm talking about how a place kicker, and not any place kicker, guys, but former Chiefs and Dartmouth College star Nick Lowry deserves more from the Hall of Fame. Now, Nick Lowry not only was the most accurate kicker of his generation, he was a guy who beat out Hall of Famer Jan Stenerud, friend of the show, Jan Stenerud, kicked outdoors, could nail 58-yard field goals, of course, which he did, and could have been the all-decade kicker of the 1980s and 1990s. He was, and of course, Morton Anderson was. And I think that's one reason Nick has been left out of the Hall of Fame. But, um, you know, he's not even been a semifinalist, which means the top 25 guys. Forget the finalists. Not even the top 25. I don't, I don't get that. Um, but the, the other reason, of course, is that until recently, the Hall hasn't looked favorably on specialists. I mean, Jan Stenner was the only pure kicker to be inducted in the first 51 years, or until punter Ray Guy, thanks to our Ron Borges was inducted in 2015, uh, 14, I'm sorry. Uh, then, of course, we have Morton Anderson this summer, who is the greatest um, all-time scorer in the NFL and who does belong in. But Football Perspective, guys, a website called Football Perspective, which not too long ago ran a list of the greatest kickers of all time. They listed Nick Lowry as the number one ahead of Stenroot and ahead of Anderson. And Chase Stewart wrote, frankly, there's not much of a question as to who is the best kicker ever. And he said, yeah. Nick Lowry. And John Turney, our friend of Pro Football Journal, he agreed listing Lowry as number one in our poll last summer. But that's not all. When Pro Football Researchers Association came up with a stat called points above the average, you know who was number one? Yeah, Nick Lowry. So let's see. He was accurate. He had a strong leg. He was a seven-time All-Pro. He kicked in miserable surfaces, mastered the winds of Arrowhead. He was the most accurate kicker of his era. There should be a place for someone like that. And there is Goose. Can't. Clark Stenerud, Anderson, or Lowry? Unfortunately, that's an easy one. Morton Anderson, Amigos, leading scorer of all time, all decade, not just for one, but two decades, meaning meaning he was the best at what he did for 20 years. So uh, Morton Anderson would be my first choice. Hey, uh, got to pay more bills, guys. So we're going to commercials. But up next, former defensive back Albert Lewis.
You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, Albert Lewis was one of the game's best cornerbacks for the Kansas City Chiefs in the 1980s. The feature performer in a secondary that included four pro bowlers. He was one of the NFL's greatest kick blockers of all time, too. In fact, in his career, he intercepted 42 passes, recovered 11 fumbles, and went to four Pro Bowls. And now he's on the preliminary list of Hall of Fame candidates for the class of 2018. But if you enshrine players on special teams' ability alone, Albert Lewis would already have a bust. Because that's what happens when you block 11 punts in your career, including four in a single season. Fortunately for us, Albert has been kind enough not to block our call today. Albert, appreciate it, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. It's, it's an honor to share some football history with all the history that's in that room on the other end of this line. <laughs> hey, Albert, you played 15 seasons at corner, the most unforgiving position in football, and Jerry Rice once said you were the, mo- the toughest cornerback he ever faced. You've been eligible for the Hall for 13 years now without ever reaching the semifinals, much less the finals. What are the voters missing about Albert Lewis? Well, it may be more about what I'm missing. Um, <laughs> that's a ring. <laughs> you might be right. They may not be missing anything. I, I think I'm missing a ring. Uh, you know, I don't know what there is to compare uh, the criteria for it so to speak, so I may not be a candidate worthy of making that judgment, but at the same time, uh, uh, when I look around the room and all the great corners that are in there, and and there are no bad corners or no bad eligible guys, no guys that aren't, but, uh, you know, I I definitely think I should be in there. Well, when you entered the the league, you ran a 4-3-40. Fifteen years later, in your last NFL season, you became the oldest uh, defender in Raider history to score a touchdown as a 38-year-old uh, when you ran an interception back 74 yards against the Seahawks. At what point in your career did you stop relying on just your speed and start relying more on defensive coverage techniques and things that you had learned after you got into the league? That's an interesting question because, for me, uh, the art of football was always a science. It was always an art form, so that always was a part of my game, the technical part. The only difference is I just didn't realize how much I didn't know when I got to the NFL. Uh, So I never really relied on my speed. It was there, and it was obvious because I needed it so much to recover because of all the mistakes that I would make. But at the same time, I always took a great deal of pride in making football for me an art form. We're speaking with Hall of Fame candidate and art lover Albert Lewis on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at Talk of Fame Net. And Albert, um, since Ron mentioned the Raiders, uh, as you know, and most people who follow football know, the Chiefs and Raiders were the bitterest of rivals, dating from their AFL days. How difficult was it for you to switch to the black and silver of the Raiders after 11 seasons in Kansas City? At the time, it wasn't difficult at all. Uh, it was more difficult for me to adjust to Kansas City. Although, uh, like I said, when, when I got drafted by the Chiefs, I was actually on the phone with Willie Brown of the Raiders. And huh. Willie made I expected to be a Raider uh, all along, but then I got ended up being drafted by the Chiefs, and I loved it. I spent 11 great years there and played with some super people and had some fantastic uh, times there, but when I had an opportunity to go to the Raiders, it was as much a business decision as anything, and I felt like um, my time in Kansas City was up. And so I moved on there because it was a team that I always had a great deal of respect for, and I had some people who were very special to the, to me there in Willie Brown and uh, Al Davis. And Willie Brown had always been my mentor, even when I was in college. Yeah, but you got to play your final those final five seasons for Al with the Raiders. So please tell our audience what you learned from Al and what exactly is the greatness of the Raiders. You can ask Ron that question. <laughs> <laughs> Albert and I already know this. The rest of you guys will enlighten you. Do you, do you really expect me to answer that question? <laughs> yes, sir. 
Yes, sir. The greatness of the Raiders hey, like Mr. Davis always says, the greatness of the Raiders is in the future. <laughs> and you tell me what that means. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> but, that, but that was the that was the answer he gave to me when I asked him that. I mean, he said the greatness of the Raiders is in his future. So I, I'll I'll take his word for that. Hey, um, just, out, just out of curiosity, did he ever come up to you when you're with the Chiefs and tell you that eventually you're going to be a Raider? Well, he never said those uh, words, but he came up to me almost every game when I was with the Chiefs and said something. Um, you know, he 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 was a uh, he he was a critiquer. I mean, he would talk about different things. Like one day, he came up to me and told me about the argument they had in the in the draft room on draft day about me. He came and he comes up and he talks about things like, you know, when my father died, he knew stuff about you that you would never think he'd know. And and uh, he really didn't like the, the socks for the Chiefs. And so when I finally got to be a Raider and, and I was there my first year and he told me that I was going to start, he didn't start me. So I was kind of upset about that. So I go to him and tell him that. And he, he looked at me and he says, ah, shut up. Just be happy I got you out of those ugly socks. <laughs> that was Al Davis. <laughs> that was Al Davis. You're exactly right. Uh, uh, Albert, I find it interesting that uh, I believe you grew up in Louisiana. You went to college in Louisiana. Uh, yet you had a pre-NFL nickname of Snow. Now, if you grew up in Vermont, I'd say, okay, I get that. Uh, but how did this come about? How were you ever called Snow? Well, that's an interesting question because in high school, I mean, not in high well, I was going out for the high school football team, and I was a ninth grader. And I weighed about 146 pounds soaking wet. And so we get these uniforms, and they're these snow-white uniforms, right? And so practice is going starting, and it's raining, it's muddy, and at the end of practice, practice ends with the Oklahoma drill. So Coach Washington calls the team together, and he says, has everybody gone? And at that moment, this big, huge lineman yells out, no, Coach, no white hadn't gone, and the team <laughs> opened up like the Red Sea. And there I was, standing there in this pure white uniform after a rainy day, and everybody else was dirty. I didn't have a spot on me. And they ain't stuck. <laughs> would you, would you think of would you think of that name? I mean, there are better names to have if you're a football player. Well, I didn't like it at first. Once I knew what it meant, but when people when people uh, when, when my high school buddies joke with me about it, I say, say what you want. But I went from snow to pro. Albert, and we're speaking with Albert Lewis on the Talk of Fame Network. Uh, Goose and I were talking the other day, and Goose said, give me the best defensive back from the Southwest Athletic Conference each year. And inside of four seasons, I'll have a really good secondary. And you know what? He's right. You, of course, came from Grambling. Which also produced, as you mentioned, Willie Brown and Everson Walls. Uh, Mel Blunt and Aeneas Williams both came out of Southern. Kenny Houston from Prairie View. Ashley Ambrose, Mississippi Valley. How do you explain all the great DBs who are produced by one conference? Well, first of all, the, uh, the, the, uh, the defensive back position in, the, in, in that conference was a glamour position. It was like quarterback or wide receiver and, and things of that nature. Now, what really helped black universities to most, unfortunately, was our history, the segregated South. Most of those great athletes started to go into these schools because they had to. Then the time came when they started going to these schools because they wanted to. Now the togetherness of our country has a, uh, a melting pot of everybody going everywhere, but their tradition has stayed alive, and there's something for everybody. There's some great athletes to go to these schools. Hmm. And they come from everywhere. Yeah, yeah right. Albert, you blocked three punts in 1986, and I remember talking to Jets special team coach Larry Pasquale before a playoff game that postseason between his Jets and your Chiefs, and he said, quote, I can't tell you who's going to win, but I will tell you this. Albert Lewis will not block a punt against us. Not only did you block a punt, you caught it in midair and returned it for Kansas City's only touchdown of the game. You made blocking punts look easy. If it is, why don't more defensive players block punts? Uh, and I think, uh, Rick, that's one of the things that, uh, to me, the Hall of Fame voters are missing. Because, for one thing, the, the blocking punt was the was more difficult than 
all my athletic endeavors combined. Because of the extreme focus it took, particularly when people knew you were coming, there was no secret. I mean, when I blocked four punts in a season, you have to consider the fact that I rushed every single punt. I mean, four out of 50 ain't bad. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And so it takes a great deal of energy, but you you get banged around. And the, the focus that's necessary to be on cue in that kind of pressure without jumping outside and just beating a man to a spot and, and the application of the law of the physics makes it one of the most unique things ever, ever to be done. And I don't think they realize the likelihood that it, or the unlikelihood of that ever happening again. But, Albert, don't you think it's because voters historically haven't paid a lot of attention to special teams? I mean, until recently, they really haven't paid a lot of attention to special teams. I think you're absolutely right, but I think special teams haven't haven't been given a lot of attention uh, by the league either. And it's not right. just the voters, and, the, and uh, it's, it's the league itself. Now mm-hmm. it has, but uh, and and but you see, the game is at a different place than it. The game today is not the brute uh, running into the wall that it used to be. Uh, it's a it's a game of skill. And people appreciate skill on any level. I mean, you see that start to transition throughout the 80s and 90s, which was probably the greatest league, the greatest decades the league has ever experienced from a growth standpoint and what it was able to do from a creating a, um, a, a level playing field with skill. Uh, because the game has so much skill right now, and it is truly based strictly in that. But you see, that's a product of what we're getting out of the colleges and our high schools. They're all doing the same thing. Well, you know, Albert, we uh, we think of Hall of Fame players, and all three of us are voters. You know, you, you tend to think about, you know, what's the signature play of this guy? You know, my old pal Willie Brown, uh, the Super Bowl return for a touchdown, and can still hear Bill King, the broadcaster, saying, Old man Willie Brown, going as he's running. Right, 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 right. Although it didn't look that old to me. It looked pretty fast. But what what would you call your signature play? Was it an interception, one of those block punts, uh, touchdown-saving tackle? What was it for you? Well, actually, it it was not a play. It was, and I think Rick will remember this, it was a moment. It was the year we opened the season. Uh, it, was, it was both good and bad. It was the year we opened the season against the Atlanta Falcons, and we, uh, we had this thing. We had this thing going in the media with McIntyre and, and, and Dion in Atlanta. Rick, do you remember that? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good. Well, so all the talk that went on, I just remember it was it was really between me and Tim more than any Dion and anyone else. Dion and Rock were cool. But I took it more personal than anybody, so um, that was my moment. I just remember standing in that tunnel, and I had a picture of me, Rock, and Kyle standing in that corner and being ready to go play football because Marty was there with us because he knew it was personal. Yeah. And uh, as, as, as many run-ins as I've had with Coach Schottenheimer, that was one of the moments I remember most of. Albert Hello. Lewis, thanks so much for the time. we got to run, but good luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy. Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks, Albert. That was Hall of Fame candidate Albert Lewis. Up next, it's the two-minute drill with Ron running it. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. That's the two-minute well, that means we're coming to the end of our first hour, and it also means we're going to the two-minute drill with Ron calling this week's signals. So, Ronnie, let's get it started. Don't ask a question. Just answer them. Two teams, <laughs> the Rams and Jaguars, have already surpassed their win total of a year ago. Will the Browns? One victory remains a steep hill to climb for a team with no quarterback. Depends on if they can get Bernie Kosar to play quarterback. Who is Bernie Kosar? Oh, no, that's right. No questions. <laughs> Will Packers rookie running back Aaron Jones' legs give out before Aaron Rodgers' collarbone heals? Well, the football seems a lot heavier for Jones these days now that he's taking handoffs from Brett Hundley instead of Aaron Rodgers. No, Ron, but the Packers run to the playoffs, Will. Speaking of Packers quarterback replacing Brett Hundley, he didn't have a completion until the second quarter of his first start, and he only threw for 87 yards. Is he really better than Colin Kaepernick? 
Mike McCarthy thinks so. Yes, because he stands for something. Mediocrity. Which is the real Adrian Peterson? The one who ran for 134 yards two weeks ago or 21 last Sunday in Arizona? Split the difference. At his age, he's about a 75-yard back. The real Adrian Peterson? The one who played for the Vikings. Matt Moore or Jay Cutler? Matt Moore. He's a dolphin. Cutler is a mercenary. Earl Morrill. He's a Spartan. Deshaun Kaiser was seen in the Cleveland bar early uh, the uh, Saturday morning before his Sunday game. He has thrown 11 interceptions when driving to tie or go ahead in a game in his career with two more added on Sunday. Should he stay out later or earlier? Bobby Lane, he isn't. He should stay out, Ron, like another year out. Deshaun Kaiser, Cody Kessler, Colin Kaepernick, or Bernie Kosar? Otto Graham. Check. <laughs> Otto Graham. The Rams are 5-0 when they score on their first drive and 0-2 when they don't. Are they front runners or just not Ram tough? Front runners score first, then give the ball to Todd Gurley, grind down the defense and the clock. They're a good team in a weak division. Cam Newton was sacked three times in the first 10 minutes of the Panthers' loss to Chicago Sunday. Does he need a quicker release or a new offensive line? He needs to get Pro Bowl tight end Greg Olson back. He needs to face facts. Cape or no cape, he ain't Superman. What does it mean that Eddie Jackson scored more touchdowns Sunday than the Panthers, Browns, Titans, and Cardinals combined? It means you can't go wrong drafting Alabama players. It means we now know why ratings are down. That's the end of the You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. I want to thank you for all your support while I was a player. And I think you all know I'm going through a little thing right now. And, and I need your... Uh, your prayers and thoughts, and I appreciate those that you've given me. That was former 49ers great and friend of the show, Dwight Clark, who was honored by the 49ers last weekend at halftime of their game with Dallas in an emotional ceremony that, frankly, was a lot more watchable than that game. Um, Dwight, as you know, was battling ALS, and, and while that wasn't exactly Lou Gehrig, uh, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth speech. It was, it was it was memorable. Yeah, it was memorable because there were 37 players from that 1981 Super Bowl championship team yep. that returned to honor him. You know, the Bartolo, Carmen Policy, Montana, they all came back. This was a special guy both on and off the field for those 49ers. Well, we've had Dwight on the show twice, and the last time it was in San Francisco at Super Bowl 50, and he was always, and Ron, I mean always, as good with his words as he was with his hands. And for someone who covered him, uh, as I did, and, and loved being in his orbit as a friend, uh, it, it's really difficult, if um, really not damn near impossible, uh, to see him as anything but an oversized personality who was the life of the party. And you know something, Ron? I mean, for at least one half last weekend, he was that again. Yeah, he was. Clark, you know, it was sad to, to watch it and, and see what's, um, you know, what's happening to his, his body, but he's clearly the same guy. Uh, inside, I thought it was great at the end when you know they cut him off because yeah. they were running out of time. Yeah. And then he came back. And, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute! I forgot one guy. You know something yeah. that that was so yeah. classic him. Whereas a lot of people would have just kind of well, okay, you know. It, uh, yeah, and you know, you know why they did that because they asked him, "What do you want us to do?" And he said, "You know what I want to do? I want to be with my friends and teammates one more time. I want to be with them one more time." Right. Um, Goose, um, he mentioned. Uh, everything that Eddie DeBarlow is doing for him, I'm talking about Dwight. And, and, and guys, I don't care what you thought of Eddie as an owner, but, you know, as a Hall of Famer, um, he's a Hall of Famer in my book when it comes to compassion um, because he's someone who always, I mean, always stands by his friends and players and who does whatever he can, and it's usually a lot, and I mean a lot, to help. Yeah, I think that was the strongest argument on Eddie's behalf in the campaign to get him enshrined. You know, it was always about the players. What could he do to make their jobs and their lives easier? You know, once you're a 49er, you're a 49er for life. And listen, Dwight... It was clear Eddie has gone to great lengths at considerable cost to explore all the avenues in a bed to help Dwight fight Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, Dwight Clark, here's to you. And here's hoping you pull off another, I mean another, last-minute save. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back to our Halloween edition of the Talk of Fame Network. And Gooseman, 
you're in Dallas with the Cowboys last week. Well, they look like the Cowboys again. I mean, Zeke Elliott was scoring touchdown. Dak looked like Dak. Um, defense looked better than the Houston Astros. Um, but there's an important hearing coming up for Zeke Elliott, and that's next Monday. What do you expect there? Trick or treat? A little bit of both. It's just another on in the string of court battles. You know, I've lost track of how many rulings you've had thus far to push Elliott's suspension back. You know, every victory by each side has been short-term. The loser appeals. That's why this thing is still tied up in courts. In the end, I I do think Elliott will wind up sitting those six games because the bottom line is the commissioner has the power, and the union gave it to him. Well, but the Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones, whom you, Goose, presented to the Hall of Fame's Board of Selectors in February, Jerry insists that Zeke Elliott has not been painted, as he said, quote, in a fair light by the NFL. You agree? Yeah, Jerry's logic is simple. If the Columbus police didn't see fit to foul charges and punish Elliott, why should the NFL attempt to punish him? The Columbus police saw holes in this case. Why doesn't the NFL see the same holes? That's his logic. If the NFL can't prove that Tom Brady actually knew anything about the Flakegate, why'd they suspend him, Ron? Huh? Please don't get me going on this goose. Because he destroyed his phone and looked like a guilty yes. man. So what? He's not suspended for destroying his phone. Hey, Ron, you're a guy who loves fights, right? Usually in Vegas. Yeah, man. Um, I may be driving to your house in a few minutes. Yeah, that's right. I know. Let's get going. Let's get ready to rumble. Um, but in, in this one, I mean, this is a legal battle. And in, in this legal battle, would you advise either side to settle? And if you would, why? Well, I, I would certainly advise Elliot and the Cowboys to settle, not not the the NFL. Uh, uh, you know, if there's one thing the Cowboys don't need is Elliot sitting down at the end of the season or or even going into the postseason, which could happen. And that mm-hmm. was an issue with Brady into the Flake Gate. Uh, you know, there was concerns about that. Uh, and the other side of it, for, from the union standpoint, is they don't need another appellate court decision confirming the authority of the commissioner yeah, in matters right, of discipline, right. which already happened in the Brady case, right. and it's going to happen again. They, 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 this is not winnable. It's not about what light he's being painted in or what the Columbus police did. It's does the commissioner have the authority to do this? Right. And he does. Right. Yeah, it's about and, the process, basically. Exactly. Yep. You know, it's funny, Ron, you mentioned that with Brady. I mean, I honestly thought the NFL did him a favor at the age of 39 by sitting him down for four games so he didn't take the four-game punishment. But with Elliott, that's no favor to him or the Cowboys. I mean, they need this guy, and you saw that last weekend. So I guess my question to you is the same as Gooseman. How do you see this playing out? Well, he loses. I mean, you know, he loses. The Cowboys lose. The union loses. The lawyers make money because they will always win. And the, and the league wins again. Uh, as you point out, uh, Clark, the players sold themselves out on this a long time ago. Right. Right. And my understanding was at the time, the executive, the players on the executive committee's uh, belief was this is only going to affect, you know, the guys that are, you know, bad guys. It's not going to affect uh, us, most of us. And I think generally that's. The, you know that's true. The Brady thing changed it a little bit in the eyes of a lot of people, but it's too late. That yeah, horse right. left the barn. Yeah. Okay, Goose. Uh, got another question for you, and this one about someone who's not in a court battle, but whose jersey is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's pass rusher Elvis Dumerville. He had his 100th career sack last weekend. His jersey was passed down to Canton. So my question to you is: Does he follow that jersey to the hall someday, or is this basically another Simeon Rice who puts up big numbers but doesn't get the votes? Two Tall Jones, Pat Swilling, Greg Townsend, Sean Jones, Clyde Simmons, Cedric Harbin, and Leslie O'Neill are all members of the 100 Sack Club. Have you heard any of their names come up in the last few decades as Hall of Fame worthy <laughs> candidates? There is no magic number for induction, as Terrell Owens, Edger and James, and Ken Riley have all discovered. Yeah, I mean, to me, he's a Hall of Very Good. Uh, I always thought he was a guy you had to be careful about, but uh, when he played in Baltimore, you were more focused on Ray Lewis and Terrell Suggs. And in Denver, uh, he had three, you know, double-digit years. Um, but when you thought about Denver, you know, late in his time, then you thought about Von Miller. He, he, really, he was a good player, but uh, I don't, I never f- felt, you know, you're looking at a Hall of Fame player when yeah. he played. Yeah, okay. Well, there's another guy I want to mention here before we get going to uh, you, Ronnie, and that's Chargers quarterback Philip Rivers. Uh, you guys talked about Eli Manning last week, and, and there was a story that ran about, I think, about two weeks ago in the Sporting News asking eight not unnamed Hall of Fame voters about uh, the candidacies of Manning and Rivers. And, and one, and I think maybe two, said they would consider Rivers as a possible first ballot choice. 
honest. I mean, now, look, I, I, I love the guy. It's hard not to. I was in San Diego. love seeing him. So on the summer, he, he may be one of the best and most passionate interviews in any sport. But, but he hasn't won a Super Bowl. And he hasn't gone to a Super Bowl. He's been to only one conference championship game, and he's never been an all-pro. I mean, in short, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't like his chances. So I'm going to ask you, how about you? I mean, Philip Rivers going to the Hall or, or going to the Mall? You know, I look at Ken Anderson, who was a league MVP, who took a team to the Super Bowl, first quarterback ever to complete 70% of passes in a season, won four passing titles, two in the 70s, two in the 80s, and Kenny Anderson can't get a sniff. I measure all the Canton wannabes at the quarterback position against Kenny Anderson. With him as a measuring stick, Rivers doesn't stack up as a Hall of Famer. I'll tell you guys, if one or two Hall of Fame voters actually said that they were considered Philip Rivers as a first ballot choice. I can see why they were anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are they talking about? Uh, look, quarterbacks uh, uh, are judged by their jewelry. They are judged by their jewelry. And their first responsibility is to win. And he's done very little of that the last seven years. Well, that's the signal that our resident all-pro dissident is about to take the stage. And that's our Ron Borges with his Borges or Otis. Or as I'm told, Ron, you look at what may be, may be the best team in the NFL. Well, you're right, guys. At 6-1, the Philadelphia Eagles have the best record in the league. But do they have the best team? To put it another way, are they bogus or Borges? Monday night, the Eagles looked real to me, beating the Redskins for the second time this season to continue what is now a five-game winning streak that's left them two and a half games ahead of the of the competition in the NFC East and in firm control of their playoff chances. But as a team that hasn't made the playoffs since 2013 for real, perhaps more to the point, is sophomore sensation Carson Wentz bodacious or bogus? <laughs> Well, let's ask Redskins coach Jay Gruden, who said, I think he's progressed at a rate as fast as anybody. I think he's already proven in this, this short career that he's one of the top quarterbacks in the league, quite frankly. And he's going to be here for that for a long time. I don't know how he got to Philadelphia, but I'm very upset about it. I think he's <laughs> bodacious, he said. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, uh, what he's mad is that the Cleveland Browns didn't take the guy, <laughs> which says a lot about the Cleveland Browns, of course. Uh, uh, You know, when Wentz has already thrown 17 touchdown passes uh, this season, which is one more than his rookie entire year, and it's a club record for the first seven games of the season. He's the driving force behind an offense ranked fifth in the league. The Eagles are more than Wentz, however. They're a well-balanced offense. They're ranked in the top ten in rushing, passing, scoring, the third and third down uh, efficiency. Now, they got to survive the loss of Jason Peters at tackle and... and, that's going to be a problem for them uh, offensively. Uh, and the other problem is, what kind of defense are they really? Is the defense good enough? On the surface, they're ranked 29th against the pass, which would seem to be fatal. But if you go deeper into the numbers like the Goose Man does, you'll find out uh, that Philadelphia is not only first against a run, but they're 12th in points allowed and third in third down efficiency defensively, which are the two real measuring sticks for a defense. they got a tough road stretch ahead, back-to-back games in Seattle uh, and against the Rams. Uh, but they have five of their final line games at home. They're looking at consecutive home games against the lowly 49ers and the Broncos before their bye week. And then they got 14 days to get ready for the Cowboys game, which is could be the the decider for the NFC East. Look, they could be 8-1 and one by then and holding a nearly insurmountable division lead. This is the Eagles' best start since 2004. It's also a team that seems anything but bogus. Ron, is Jay Gruden as upset about this as John Gruden upset that the Raiders didn't draft Tom Brady in 2000 when he was coaching them? Wow. <laughs> yeah, Gruden says that now. He wasn't saying squat about Tom Brady as I understand it back in the day, you know. And, you know, look, I mean, it, it says a lot about the Eagles scouting that, you know, that they were and, and their willingness to take a chance on a guy from North Dakota State. Uh, and it says a lot about the Cleveland Browns and why they're the mess they're in. Uh, that they weren't willing to take that kind of a risk. And it's certainly a risk that looks like it's going to pay off. It's still early in Wentz's career. Uh, but, boy, he's he's certainly looked like something this season. Oh, Ron, are you more upset that the Raiders didn't take Tom Brady than the Patriots? <laughs> yeah, because if they had it, you know, the Patriots would still be playing every weekend at 1 o'clock, and I'd be home by, <laughs> for dinner. There you go. <laughs> hey, thanks, Ronnie. You know what? Better here than Philadelphia. And here? Yeah, here we're going to stop. But when we return, we'll hear from Booker Edgerson on the Hall of Fame candidacy of former Bills running back Cookie Gilchrist. 
You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, Brooker Edgerson played eight seasons with Buffalo in the 1960s and helped the Bills win two AFL championships. They enshrined him in their wall of fame in 2010, and we've invited him here today to talk about a teammate who will be enshrined posthumously in that wall of fame this weekend, and that's former running back Cookie Gilchrist. Now, in the book, The Cookie That Did Not Crumble, Booker said it was a privilege to have Cookie as, quote, a teammate, roommate, best friend, and most of all, a brother, unquote. Cookie Gilchrist is a special guy both on and off the field, and it's our privilege to have Booker Edgerson with us to remember the legacy of Cookie Gilchrist. Booker, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Booker, you and Cookie both arrived in Buffalo in 1962. You as a rookie from Western Illinois and Cookie from the Canadian Football League, where he was not only the best running back, but the best player. What did you think when you first saw Cookie, and how soon did you realize this guy is something special? I had never heard of Cookie before I came to Buffalo. <laughs> you know, being from the Midwest, um, you know, Chicago Bears, St. Louis Cardinals. Um, that's where my mindset was. Plus, I never even thought about playing professional football anyway. Uh, it was just a, a last-minute situation. So when Cookie got to Buffalo, you know, I'm hearing all this cookie-cookie and, you know, who is this guy, you know? <laughs> and uh, I soon realized who he was after a few days of practice uh, as he was running over everybody. Um <laughs> You know, he was, uh, he was something else. Uh, he was uh, very vocal, uh, charismatic, and all the above. Um, and to me, he was the franchise. He's the first franchise player uh, in Buffalo, as far as I was concerned. Uh, you know, as I thought about it later on, is that uh, you know, Cookie, he established himself here, and he established the Buffalo Bills. And I think that was one of the main reasons as time went along is that Buffalo is still the home of the Buffalo Bills. Well, you grew up, uh, uh, like all of us, watching Jim Brown and later became a teammate of Cookie Gilchrist. Uh, Both of them were, you know, physical freaks in a lot of ways, bigger than a lot of defensive linemen and linebackers, faster than everybody uh, 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 they were playing against. Can you compare the two of them? I mean, their styles were were different, obviously, to a degree, but can you compare them as runners? Yeah, uh, I would put Cookie, you know, in the same category with Jim Brown, but also I would put him in a a separate category because Cookie not only was a hell of a runner, you know, uh, he was an outstanding blocker and he had speed. But he also kicked field goals and extra points and kick off on the kickoff team. So he was a, 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 a multi-ball player uh, in those days when we didn't have him. Uh, so that is something that Jim Brown didn't do because uh, I'm not saying he couldn't have done it, but that wasn't what the Cleveland Browns brought him there to do. But uh, Cookie was a, a outstanding individual that was on the same stage that Jim Brown was on. Uh, and and they fought about it, uh, not fist fight, fight about it, but they talked about it all the time, about who was the better guy. And, and, and to me, obviously, I had to give Cookie the edge because uh, I played with him and I saw the damage that he did on the field. I, I saw his leadership uh, and, and the practices and everything. So uh, I always gave Cookie the edge. We're speaking with Booker Edgerson on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, Booker, since you mentioned that, um, I, I want to ask you a direct question. Rick Goslin, I think a week ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, wrote a uh, column for our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, basically saying that Cookie Gilchrist belongs in the Hall of Fame. Do you agree? And if you were standing in front of voters, what would you tell them? to convince them that Cookie Gilchrist does, in fact, belong in the Hall of Fame? Well, the biggest thing is, is that, unfortunately, you know, a, a lot of the sports writers uh, today did not see Cookie play, and uh, and he was so controversial back in those days 
people sort of like, um, you know, throw him off to the side and said, okay, he was a great ball player, but he didn't have this and he didn't have that, and they was evaluating him on other things than, than playing the game of football. I mean, you take a look at Gail Sears, what he played about five years, and uh, so, you know, so Cookie played three years in Buffalo, four years uh, in Denver and Miami. Uh, so he had about a seven-year span of football, and uh, five of those years was very good years. So um, looking at the records, I mean, he set uh, – he, he ran for five touchdowns in one game. He scored 30 points. Uh, he ran for 243 yards. He was the first uh, American Football League player to go for 1,000 yards. Uh, and there was numerous other things that he did. Uh, so I think he was a, he was a trailblazer. He was the uh, MTV of the 1960s. Uh, uh, he was fast. He was furious. And he was feared by most of the players out on the field of, of our opponents. Okay, Cookie was the first player in AFL history to rush for 1,000 yards in a single season. Then he also set the pro football single-game rushing record with 243 yards against the Jets in 1963. And that, that record stood for eight years. You didn't see 200-yard rushing games back in the day. What do you remember about that game? Well, <laughs> he ran over everybody in his way. That's what I remember about it. Uh, but it... <laughs> <laughs> it was a it, excuse me. It was a tremendous game. Um, he just had a field day. Um, uh, the, the Bills had a field day. Um, couldn't nobody stop him. Uh, he even ran over his own linemen. You know, and he told him, you know, if you don't get out of the way, I'm gonna run over you too. <laughs> and basically, uh, he did it on several occasions where he ran right up the back of Billy Shaw. And uh, Stu Barber, uh, he just said, hey, get out of the way. I'm here to play the game. I'm here to win. I mean, he was so he was so determined. He was a very determined ball player. I mean, nothing stood in his way uh, as far as he concerned. It was the fact is that this is my job, and I'm going to do it the best way I can. Now, he was uh, – uh... He was the uh, CFL MVP as a running back. He also made the all CFL All-Star team as a linebacker. Like you pointed out, he kicked field goals and extra points. Um, Hall of Fame coach John Madden once called Cookie the best blocking back the game has ever seen. Is there anything this guy couldn't do on a football field? Nothing. He was he, he was a, he was a very good uh, receiver. I mean, he had soft hands, uh, so so he was like a triple threat. You know, he was you know a runner. A pass receiver and a blocker. So, uh, and as he said one time, he said, if they gave me the chance to play quarterback, I'd be good at that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going back to that, Cookie led the AFL in rushing in 64, but had a falling out with the Bills and, and Buffalo, traded him away the following season to Denver. Later in life, uh, I'm told he patched things up with Buffalo's Hall of Fame owner, Ralph Wilson. What do you think this Wall of Fame honor would mean to Cookie if he was here today? Oh, it would mean the world to him. In fact, um, Cookie was actually the first Wall of Famer because Ralph Wilson made a statement um, in early, uh, late 70s, 69s and 70s, somewhere in there, is that once they built that stadium out in Archer Park, Cookie's name would go up on the on the stadium, but they had a fallen out, and that stopped that whole situation. And so Cookie's name never got any further than uh, a hearsay. Do you think he'd show up for it, Booker? Do you think he'd show up for it? I mean, he didn't in CFL. Do you think he'd show up for this? Oh yeah, he would have showed up for it. Um, you know, I I kept in contact with Cookie uh, all the way up until his death, and uh, and and you know he was so proud of me going on the wall, and I told him I said you should be up there, not not me. You should be there, and he was saying at that point is that he wished him and Ralph Wilson had been able to patch up the difference and everything that would have provided him the avenue to be on that wall. Yes, he would have loved that to death. We're not going to be there, obviously. What are you going to say Sunday? 
Well, I, I want to say, you know, first of all, I want to congratulate the family, and I want to talk about uh, Cookies uh, and, uh, you know, that how he really uh, loved the fans and the fans loved him, and I respected the fans and and, um, and and bringing him into the brotherhood of the 28 guys that's on the wall up there right now. Uh, also, that he was not only a, a football player, but he was my best friend here. Um, so there was a lot of respect, and there's a lot of things. You know, I'm not going to talk about a whole lot because they don't give you a whole lot of time to talk. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I just more, more or less want to uh, state the fact that he did uh, was the first thousand thousand yard runner and uh, 243 yards, and he still holds a record of uh, uh, five touchdowns and. Uh, Thirty points per game, uh, so it's just a ba- just a basic stuff to you know, uh, you know, because you can't say too much in in, in right. two minutes. Hey Booker, we've got to run here, but uh, thanks so much for the time and and thanks for sharing memories of Cookie Gilchrist, a, a special player. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you too, and I'm telling you, uh, come Sunday. I, uh, I'm quite sure they're going to have a sellout crowd, and there's going to be a lot of people at that stadium who's going to be remembering Cookie, and I'm going to be giving a speech on him. Terrific. So, Good. Um, thank you for calling and having me on your show. You got it. Thanks, Bill. That was thank former you. Buffalo Bills star Booker Edgerson. Coming up, we'll sit down with Hall of Famer Andre Tippett of the New England Patriots. This is the Talk of the Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Ah, yes, there it is again, Ron. That familiar whistle. Uh, you heard it the first hour, so you should know what it means by now. The two-minute drill going, Ron. Let's do it. Bears rookie quarterback Mitchell Trubisky threw seven passes in their 17-3 win over the Panthers last Sunday. Is this a passing league or not? Well, it was a passing league uh, when there were more than four quarterbacks. Ron, defense wins championships. Right now, the Bears trust that defense more than they trust that young quarterback. The Jaguars' defense has twice had double-digit sacks this season. Are they the NFL's most lethal pass rush? Nope, because if they were, they'd have people in the stands. The most lethal pass rush is whatever pass rush is playing the Colts that week. (laughs) Speaking of the Colts, who gets fired first, Chuck Pagano or Hugh Jackson? Chuck, losing his way of life in Cleveland. Uh, Not so much in Indy. Pagano, quarterback, I know he was expected to win this season. Jackson wasn't. Have you ever seen a better or weirder finish than the end of Thursday night's Raiders-Chiefs game? Uh-huh. The Immaculate Reception. We're trying to forget that game. <laughs> Agreed. Immaculate Reception. I know, Ron, you didn't want to hear that. Those silver and black earmuffs you got on. Nope, but Thursday kept yelling, throw another flag. Uh, Marshawn Lynch said he ran on the field to protect his cuz, Marcus Peters, in that game. Does he know he plays for the Raiders and not the Chiefs? Uh, in case you didn't know, Ron, he plays for no one. The NFL said he can stay in the stands this weekend. clear <laughs> Marshawn Lynch plays for himself. One week after head coach Ben McAdoo handed play calling to his, to his assistant, Mike Sullivan, got a win. The Giants fell flat. So who should call the plays this week for the G-Men? That'd be Bob McAdoo. At least he knows how to score. Eli Manning, he seems to have a better grasp of what that offense can and can't do than either McAdoo or Sullivan. Did you guys have an equipment malfunction when you learned Justin Timberlake will perform at halftime of Super Bowl 52? Yeah, I did. I adjusted my TV to keep it on mute. No, but my iPod shut down. We'd like to thank Albert Lewis, Andre Tippett, and Booker Edgerson for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That'd be talkoffamenetwork.com or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, tune into the station at this time next week. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. This is Ruben Brown, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 